Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre for another episode as we'll recap a third consecutive title from Daniil Medvedev. We have Indian Wells right around the corner as we move into the Sunshine Double. And we have an awesome guest this week, Mike, uh, joined by a former Wimbledon finalist, uh, Mal Washington, stopping by as our guest on the podcast. That's one of my childhood, like the players that I grew up watching and really enjoying and being into. And I got to be honest, like I was a big fan of American tennis when I was growing up, more so than Canadian tennis. Uh, Sorry, listeners. But uh, just being honest, because, you know, there weren't a ton of Canadian players who were challenging and competing for the big titles. And the Americans were winning so much back then. And and when you've got a guy like Malavia Washington, who who peaked around number 11 in the world in the ATP rankings, um, Grand Slam finalist, uh, won a bunch of titles. And yet there were so many other American players that were winning even more than him. I mean, it was just abundance of riches for the United States back then on the men's uh, side, uh, let alone the women as well. And so really cool to have him join us this week. And I just want to apologize first and foremost, if I could, about uh, my voice throughout this interview, because I had just returned from uh, coaching a hockey tournament with my kid last weekend when we interviewed Mal and it was a struggle for me to to just get it out without, you know, squeaking and croaking. So apologies in advance. But his answers were terrific. What a great guest to have. Uh, I really feel um, proud, I guess, of like having a guest like him on the show. He just what a great guy on and off the court, really. Yeah, very, very inspiring. I'll, I'll let you guys listen and hear it. Uh, here's our interview with Malavie Washington. This week on Match Point Canada, we're very excited to welcome former Wimbledon finalist, Olympian, and top 10 player on the ATP, Malavia Washington, to talk about his career, his foundation, and so much more. Mal, it's a real privilege to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Mike, it is great to be on. I'm uh, looking forward to our time together. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. It's, um, you know, I got to say, I was a big fan of, of you and your whole generation really growing up. That's when I was a kid picked up a tennis racket for the first time and and really got into it. So it's pretty special to have you here today for me and for Ben. Maybe you can tell our listeners, they know a lot about your tennis career, but about what's been keeping you busy these days, whether it be inside or, or outside of the sport. Well, inside of the sport um, and outside of the sport, a lot of my time is really around two things. One, uh, my family, my, my son who's in college, so we're spending a fair amount of time uh, heading up to Virginia and visiting him at college and watching some of his games. My daughter is a is a senior in high school, so we're we're going to her games a ton. Certainly, my you know within the the world of tennis, my my youth foundation um, here in Jacksonville, Florida, has kept me busy for really the last twenty six years. So everything we're doing there that that has kept me busy, and certainly you know on the non tennis side, one of my my second loves or maybe my third love behind tennis and my youth foundation is uh, the business of real estate. So that is what I spend most of my time doing. And, and unfortunately, and this might sound really bad considering uh, my background every year, I find myself watching a little bit less tennis, you know, which, which, which kind of drives me nuts. Cause I <laughs> the tournament will come around and I'm really looking forward to it. And then I just get busy with other stuff. And then all of a sudden I, I feel like I'm, I'm turning on the TV when it's deep into the third set or the fifth set or uh, towards the end of the tournament. But I, I try to catch a little tennis on TV when I can. Do, do your kids play tennis? Is that a passion or an interest for them? 
there's zero interest in my kids playing tennis. They played, they each probably played tennis maybe one summer and, and it just never stuck. They were both really interested in team sports. I coached a little bit of uh, my son's baseball and my daughter's volleyball, not volleyball, but softball. And they never took to tennis. I think there was something about being around a bunch of kids and, uh, you know, my daughter, she, she never wanted to miss out on anything with her friends so for her, it was a it was a big social thing. And then I think for my son, he had a couple of friends that that were on the baseball team with him. So that's what they graduated to. That's uh, that's really interesting that you sort of have that that diversity of of sports that, you know, your kids are playing because for, for yourself, you come from such a strong tennis background in the sense that, you know, your father played, your siblings all played professionally as well. What do you think maybe made you as a, a kid really fall in love with the sport and and really stick with it and know that was kind of you're going to be your path when I started playing tennis at five years old it was just like any other kid picking up football basketball tennis soccer baseball lacrosse my dad put a racket in my hand and you can make any sport fun for a kid and I think for me playing my first tournament was what kind of drew my or kept my interest there was just something about being seven years old on the court, you know, you walk out there with one racket, two tennis balls, and you're playing against another kid. And you have an opportunity to to win one of those $3 stick man trophies. And there was just something cool about that. And it, looking back on it was kind of funny because in most matches, if I was losing, I was crying on, my, on the changeovers. If I'm winning, the other kid's crying. <laughs> and there was something about you you walk up to the off the court and you're like yeah I want to do that again so for me the competition and being able to compete and of, of course having some success early certainly helps the more success and you're winning tournaments and beating players and you're getting a, a state or a national ranking that certainly helps and is kind of cool because you're one of the you know the cool kids in school with that yeah, no, no doubt. I, I think for a lot of tennis fans, when they do hear your name and myself included, we're thinking of that incredible Wimbledon finals run in 1996. But I'd be curious, maybe for yourself, uh, some other memories from your career that that stand out. Are there any maybe victories or, or titles you're particularly proud of outside of that that run at the All England Club? Oh, sure. That I mean, certainly uh, the Wimbledon run in 96 is right up there. My biggest my biggest three were were certainly that. Uh, that run later that summer representing the United States in the Olympics in uh, in Atlanta was absolutely tremendous. Uh, there's just something about being there at the opening ceremonies in the United States. You feel like 80,000 people were looking directly at you, not the other athletes, but directly at me. That's the feeling you get. And I literally had other athletes saying, what was that like? What was that moment like there? Because it was special for them. But being an American, what was it like? And and for me, also representing representing my country in Davis Cup, uh, the first time in in Charlotte, North Carolina, then the Czech Republic, in Prague, and then the last time in in Brazil. That was the last time I represented the country. So that was pretty special. And the the fun, not the funny thing about it, but the interesting thing about that trip to Brazil, uh, I I played Gustavo Kirten on the uh on the first on the opening day and i didn't know who he was and that happened to be the the day i injured my knee which was kind of the beginning of the end of my career i just didn't know it at the time but uh, a couple months later having had knee surgery 
I'm watching Gustavo win Roland Garros for the first time. And literally in February 97, I did, I'd heard his name, but I had never met him. I had never seen him. So I didn't know anything about his game. And, and then a few months later, he's winning Roland Garros. So, but those are, those are, you know, three of the, you know, kind of the biggest moments of, uh, of my career, certainly winning, winning my first tournament in Memphis in, in 1992, that was, uh, that was special. And, and then certainly a few individual wins were pretty special when you're beating some of those big names. How often do you get asked about that Wimbledon run? Cause that's going to be my next question, but I'm just curious how many times a, a week or, or, you know, so do you get asked about that? Well, well, here's the thing. I never get asked about the Wimbledon run. Uh, I don't. I get asked about the streaker who <laughs> ran naked across the court right. right before the start of the Wimbledon run. And I usually look, kind of divert the conversation into maybe the match or something like that. And then no, no one wants to hear about the actual match. They just <laughs> want to know, like, what happened to the streaker. So that that I hear that or get sent uh, in so, on social media that picture eh, every once in a while. Usually, well, that, usually around Wimbledon time. That wasn't going to be one of mine, but uh, you kind of took it for me there, I guess, and, and ran with it. So it's no pun intended. Um, for me, Wimbledon was always the, the the big one. I mean, that was the tournament as a kid that I didn't matter what we were doing as a family, whether we were at home, uh, a vacation on the beach, like I was staying in and watching tennis all day long. And so your run to the finals for me is is a very vivid memory. I recently just rewatched the the fifth set against Todd Martin where you trailed, I forgot, you trailed five to one double break and were able to come back and win that match. It's just unreal to, to watch. But what clicked for you during that two-week period of time? And, and how did that result both help you, but maybe also challenge you moving forward in your career afterwards? It was, that run for the two weeks was, was extremely special. And it, it was interesting because, you know, I wasn't one of those guys who was going deep into the second week very often. Okay. You know, you had Agassi, Becker, Edberg, I mean, all those, those big names who were going deep into the second week. And in my half of the draw, a couple of those big names dropped out, you know, Agassi uh, lost, uh, Becker pulled out due to injury. And so the draw that half opens wide up and you knew someone who had never gone deep in, at Wimbledon was going to get through. And it just happened to be me. And that match against Todd down 5-1, that's certainly a special comeback for me and a great memory for me, probably a terrible memory for him. But uh, we're, we're friends and we're, we can talk about it now. It's one of those things throughout the course of the year, you probably win one or two matches that you should have lost. And you probably lose a couple of matches that you should have won. And and for me, for whatever reason, things aligned and uh, someone was looking out for me and I, I got through. Uh, so that was uh, that was that was very, very special. One of those moments that you you dream about as a kid, but you don't ever know if you're going to get there. You feel like you you are. You feel like you can because some of your competitors who you've played against and beaten have gotten there. And when I say my competitors, you know, Andre Agassi, he goes on and wins. Wimbledon in 92 and I've had wins over him and Michael Chang having great success and I've had wins over him um, or Stefan Edberg and I'm thinking I'm beating these guys but I'm not getting to that next level at a, at a major so in my head I'm thinking I have it in me but you don't know until you actually do it and you know for me from that point on I was looking for bigger and better um, and it, it just so happened that seven months after that Wimbledon run is when I injured my knee uh, playing Davis Cup 
in February 97. And uh, that was kind of the, the beginning of the downhill of my playing career. You mentioned so hey, many, sorry, Ben, you, no, you mentioned ahead. so many big players there, uh, Becker, Edberg, Agassi, Sampras. I mean, you played during such a great time for American men's tennis, not to mention all the other fantastic players that were out there. We, we talk, you know, the past 15 years about the big three and how they don't give people a chance. But I feel like during your day, there were a good 10 to 15 guys who were all super incredible tennis players as well. Uh, who was the toughest for you to face uh, from that group? Uh, I, I'd say two. I, I never had uh, a lot of sex, success against Sampras. Uh, I remember I was talking to a group of kids at a high school once and said, uh, and they, they had asked that question. I was like, well, probably Sampras. I'm 0-6 against him. And a kid stands up and says, uh, excuse me, sir, it's actually 0-7. <laughs> I was like, no, okay, you, you can leave now. No more questions nice. from you. Uh, he was he was always tough. His game matched up very, very well against my game, as it did against with so many players. Michael Chang, I always felt was a very was a tough mental challenge because you you ne never knew uh, you never felt like he was going to go away. There are some players out there you felt like if you could get on top of them early, that they'd kind of fade a little bit or they would have a mental lapse with, that you could take advantage of. And and Chang wasn't wasn't really that player at all. So had a couple of wins over him. But. You know, he was one of those players that uh, that you know gave me fits, but I I loved it. That's what you you love about the sport when you can play against the greats and and have success. It was uh, great hearing you men mentioned the opportunity to, of course, represent the United States not only in the Olympics but uh, on a few key Davis Cup teams. Uh, Canada, of course, just came off uh, an historic Davis Cup title this this past season, our first in our country's history. Um, Davis Cup, you know, Mike and I both absolutely love it as an event, and I feel like it's the type of event that needs maybe more attention, maybe a bigger platform. Do you feel that way too? And and do you think could we reach a stage where maybe Davis Cup is something that's being heavily broadcasted across the United States? It, it gain, gains that sort of big interest nationally. I, I think it has the potential to get there, but there's so much focus on uh, on the majors. And I think the majors will always be the biggest and the best events out there. And that is really where you are, your career is gauged or measured by how you do um, at the majors, not necessarily at Davis Cup, though I would have loved to have been on a, on a winning Davis Cup team. Uh, it, would nice, it would be nice if Davis Cup was to tennis as maybe Ryder Cup is to golf mm -hmm. so the big four majors in golf as big as those are Ryder cup Ryder cup is just something that's just massive it's it's a very special event and in in my opinion it's it's there amongst the players but not necessary not necessarily amongst the you know the broader uh the broader public but when, when i think of davis cup i always think of the fact that you know i i had a pretty solid career but when it came to Davis Cup, there was always going to be like four or five guys who were going to get asked before me. Sampras, right. Agassi, Courier, Chang, maybe Todd Martin, depending on the surface. And then if all of them kind of said no, or one of them said no, it's like, oh, let's go ask Mal Washington. He'll play. <laughs> so it, it, in that regard, it kind of stunk because I didn't get a lot of opportunities to play, only three opportunities to play Davis Cup. But I, I have a lot of respect for those players who represent their country and can succeed uh, in Davis Cup. What Canada did was was very, very special, and you could see it 
uh, in the reaction from the players and the fans and the Canadians uh, to, to win Davis cup is a big, big deal. And uh, it's, it's something that is in the history books uh, forever. And so that that's pretty special. Yeah. Well, well said. Um, it feels like now in, in men's tennis, at least uh, we're, we're kind of reaching a transition phase in the game, of course, with Federer's retirement, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic getting older and at Finally. the tail end of, <laughs> Finally, that's right. Finally, at the tail end of their careers, although they're still winning, which is unbelievable. But uh, I know before we started recording, you mentioned uh, finding it hard to find time to watch tennis for yourself. But are there any players of this generation or this crop that you really keep your eye on or you're particularly interested in? I mean, how, how do you not be a fan of Alcaraz? Yeah. How do you not be a fan of uh, Coco Golf? I mean, to to think two teenagers uh, doing what they love to do and doing it at the highest level. And I'm looking at both of their games and thinking they could be improving literally for the next five years, but if they just sustained where they are right now, they're going to, they're going to be hall of fame players. So I think between the two of them, it's pretty cool to just think about where they, where they could be uh, throughout their careers. I think I saw a stat, recently that venus serena coco and maybe lindsey davenport are the only players to have like 10 wta finals as a teenager so that that just kind of shows you and those are all hall of famers and that just shows Mm -hmm. you kind of the trajectory that that coco's career is on right now but looking at what uh carlos alcaraz did at the u.s open last year i mean how do you not be a fan of uh, of that guy and of course my daughter is a fan of him so feel like tennis is in good hands with uh, the names you just mentioned. Uh, I wanted to ask you a non-tennis related question, although maybe there's a bit of a tie in here, but with February and, and Black History Month just coming to a close, I wanted to ask you what, what Black History Month means to you and, and how important it is in terms of the place it should occupy in, in the world of tennis, where we've seen so many great black champions in the past and influential black tennis players such as yourself, of course. I mean, certainly I, yeah, I, I acknowledge and appreciate uh, Black History Month. I'm one who doesn't think it should necessarily be relegated to one month a year. Um, I, you know, I, I think there are, are stories, not just of Black people, but of all people that, that can be celebrated uh, throughout the course of, throughout the course of the year. But I, I think for, for me, you know, to be on with you two and to be recognized during during February for, you know, the things I was able to do in the sport of tennis. Uh, it's great. I hope that somehow, some way I can provide a little spark or a little bit of inspiration to, to other, other athletes or other young boys and girls in or out of the, the world of tennis, certainly with my foundation. I hope, you know, maybe what I was able to, to do in the sport and what I'm doing now, maybe that can provide a little bit of uh, inspiration and direction to them. But, you know, when I, when I think of Black History Month, I also really think about the history of not just people in the sport of tennis, but outside of the sport. Uh, I, I look at, certainly feel a responsibility to carry myself and hold myself in a manner that my parents, grandparents, and my great-greats can be proud of. Um, and I, I literally carry pictures of my parents and my grandparents, and but especially my great-great-grandfather, the oldest picture, you know, the family has. And I, I think about kind of the era he was born in, you know, in the mid 1800s. And 
I want him kind of looking down on me and saying, yeah, that's my great, great right there. And, and be proud of what, what he sees. So I feel like there's a, there's a responsibility that I have to, um, to the current and the future generations, whether it's my kids or players or non-players to carry myself and to represent, um, represent me and, and my family in the best way uh, that I can. I mean, I definitely get that sense from you just in terms of following along in your, your Instagram account. And I got to say, I really enjoy those those beach chats you have on your videos there. And it makes me wish I had that kind of scenery up here in Canada. But uh, I just really appreciate I find them so motivational and so positive. And, and I'm sure most of your followers do as well who, who tune in. There was one recently where you were talking about Arthur Ashe and how 20-year-old Malavia Washington, 20-year-old you got to meet him but didn't take full advantage of that moment. And I thought that was a really important message for, for younger people today and people of all ages, really. But maybe you could just elaborate on that a little bit for our, our listeners. Sure. I, I had the opportunity, fortunately, on more than one occasion, but I was at the University of Michigan. I was in my sophomore year. I was the number one player in the country. Arthur Ashe was visiting the university. He was at our tennis center, and he talked to us a little bit and the team, the tennis team, and we took a couple of pictures. And I, in my video, I was saying there was an opportunity right there for me, right in front of me to reach out to Mr. Ash and say, Mr. Ash, do you think I could have your phone number? Do you think we could trade phone numbers and maybe I could call you once a month, twice a year, whatever the case may be? Do you think at 20 years old, I took advantage of it? No, I didn't take advantage of it. Just imagine if you had the great Arthur Ash as a mentor or as an advisor. If I had asked him, you know, could he, we spend a little bit of time together on the phone or face-to-face, -face, he would have bent over backwards and said yes. And my whole point of the video is, and I speak to a lot of young people about this, about taking advantage of those opportunities that are right in front of you, that are staring you in the face. You just have to have the guts to get out of your comfort zone and ask the question, get out of your comfort zone and say hello and meet someone and and or give out a business card or or apply for that job or that internship or ask that that person to practice. You know, hey, can we you mind if we hit a few balls? Whatever the case may be. And the worst they can do is like, oh, no, now's not a good time or maybe a little bit later or the best they can do is like, sure, yeah, let's go hit a couple of balls. Or absolutely, here's my phone number. Let's talk later today. So I, my message was take advantage of the opportunities that you have. And the more you do it, the more you'll get used to it. And you will never regret uh, those efforts of stepping outside of your comfort zone. Oh, that's that's a fantastic message. And uh, I, I wanted to ask about your youth foundation, because uh, I think for you, not just uh, through your career, but uh, since it's finished, you've en encompassed the importance of being a, a role model as a as a professional athlete. Of course, you were honored winning the uh, Arthur Ashe Humanitarian Award in 2009, which feels very fitting. But you've now worked uh, in the Jacksonville community with your youth foundation for, as you said, 26 years. How, how important has that cause been to you? And, and maybe if you could explain some of the work you're, you're doing actively now. No, I, I appreciate you asking that question. It is, it's me not feeling the responsibility as an athlete, but just feeling the responsibility as a citizen of my community to try to do something. And for, for me, working with kids is something I'm passionate about. I love to, whether it's getting on the tennis court or just talking with them or engaging with them, I'm, I'm a big believer in 
exposing kids to different experiences, but also leading by example. So every thing I require and every rule we have at the foundation, it starts with me, with how I dress, how I act, how I represent myself. And young people notice that. And I want them to notice that I am following every single rule that we have for them. But the, my foundation, the Mount Washington Youth Foundation, we started 26 years ago just as a tennis program, just exposing kids to the sport of tennis, what I consider the greatest sport in the world. And I was just hoping kids could get from the sport that I've what I've been able to get and that value of hard work and sticking to a task and sportsmanship and so many character building things. And it has morphed into an after school tennis life skills and education program serving a you know a big group hundreds of kids in the inner city of Jacksonville five days a week after school in fact right now we uh, have a couple hundred kids at our uh, at our youth programs and just trying to keep them on track kindergarten all the way through high school and uh, we're serving some some kids some young adults now who are in college and really trying to use the platform that I have to in some small way, better someone else's life. That's what we're trying to do. Well, I, I think it's more than uh, some small way. And I, I know it was, you know, now 14 years ago that you, you received that honor, but but it did did it help maybe shine a light a little bit on your cause to, to win that humanitarian award in 2009? It did. And I, I think what I appreciate about it, and with my name on the organization, I get a lot of recognition and credit and notoriety around the things that we're doing. But I think it really validated for all of our staff, volunteers, that what we're doing is working and a lot of people are recognizing it. What we're doing is impacting the lives of some kids and people are appreciating that. So I accepted the award, but it was really, I accepted the award on behalf of all of our, our full and part-time staff and all of our volunteers and donors who have ever supported us because I'm just one individual. And over the years, we've had literally thousands of, of staff and, and volunteers and donors who have contributed in some way into the lives of the kids. That's so impressive and so inspirational. And, and Mal, for all you accomplished on the court in your tennis career, to see what you've done since then and are continuing to do is, is just really something else. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with Ben and, and I today and for our listeners here at Matchpoint Canada, across Canada and, and other places. We really appreciate it. It's been fantastic to get to chat with you today. Mike, I appreciate it. Ben, thank you as well. And uh, maybe one day we'll do it again. There you have it, our conversation with Mal Washington. And you can tell just he's so passionate about the Youth Foundation. It's cool, too. It's not like something that he sort of just picked up late in his tennis career and kind of wrapped it up. He's been doing it uh, for 26 years, which is incredible. He was honored uh, with that Arthur Ashe Humanitarian Award, but he continues doing that work day in, day out, which I, I think is so impressive uh, for him to be such a ro role model for kids and not just kids, just entering athletics as a whole in his community. Yeah, 26 years doing the foundation, which goes back to during his playing career, if my math is correct. And uh, my goodness, is Malvia Washington, for those who are maybe watching this on YouTube, I think we're going to put the video up there, too. He looks terrific for his age. My oh, goodness, yeah. that guy looks like a million bucks. I mean, he doesn't look like he's aged at all from his playing days, almost, you know, and he had the shaved head back then, too. So less of a difference, I suppose. But uh, yeah, the guys kept it together. And just involved in so many great initiatives. And and for those who were on Instagram, I mean, check out his Instagram page because I, I just find, and I mentioned it in our interview, but just watching his, he does these strolls on the beach in Florida 
where he's just talking about all sorts of things and not even tennis related, but I just find it to be such a, such a calming presence and such a voice of, of positivity. Uh, I really get a lot out of it. So, and, and that's how I connected with him to begin with was watching these things on, on Instagram. And I'm like, Oh, it'd be great to have him on the, the podcast. I've been trying for a while and we finally got him. So our, our thanks to him for joining us, but uh, yeah, I really enjoyed some of the things he brought up both from his playing career and even just in terms of positive mindset as well afterwards. Yeah, definitely. I, I always notice your eyes light up anytime we speak with uh, some of these former tennis greats from the 80s and 90s. You absolutely love it. I get uh, so which, stoked, you know, and yeah. no disrespect to the current crop, but it just, uh, you know, the, the kid in me gets kind of like reawakened. And I just, if you had told like, you know, 14 or 15 year old me that one day I get to interview Malvia Washington or some of these these guys from that era, uh, Jim Courier, Jimmy Connors, what have mm-hmm. you, John McEnroe, like I never would have, like it would have just blown my mind. So yeah, it is exciting. And I mean, that's why we do this, you and me, right? Like, we we love the sport. We're fans of the sport. We grew up loving the sport. We both play the sport. It's it's woven into the fabric of our lives, not to sound too, like, kind of corny, but but really it is. And um, and speaking with him was was fantastic. And, you know, one of the things I took from the interview was what would a team first kind of guy, when he mentioned the big moments in his career, Davis Cup, which he played three times, um, and also... Uh, the Olympics, both of those were career highlights. And you just really got the sense that he enjoyed being a part of that that bigger picture in terms of tennis and, and being connected with his fellow pros and and obviously a very proud American too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, hearing him reflect on that Olympic moment was super cool. And uh, just to know uh, how strong American tennis was in the 90s, as he really highlighted, it was very tough to get that Davis Cup selection. I had a lot of very strong players in front of you, like Sampras, Agassi, Courier. I mean, so many names. So uh, just to get selected a few times um, was an honor for him, which is also cool. And then mentions the the knee injury, which finally ends his career. But uh, he's continuing on very, very strong. Uh, let's continue on talking some tennis over the past week. I, I mean, we highlighted Danil Medvedev and his return uh, the other week with victories in Rotterdam and, and Doha, and he continues on now beating Andre Rublev in the finals of Dubai 6-2-6-2, three consecutive titles. He's now won 18 titles in his career in 18 different cities, which is actually an open era record. That's pretty cool. I think the most significant moment here is, of course, handing Novak Djokovic his first loss of the season as well. Hey, hold on a second. You got to say that again for me. I got to make sure I understand this. His record is winning titles, 18 titles in 18 different cities. That's right. He hasn't doubled up anywhere. No, that's crazy. <laughs> that, right. that is a crazy, crazy very unusual and that's 18 different trophies i believe our uh twitter friend bastian fashion has captured that nicely with 18 different trophies uh, he doesn't have one of the same trophy in his uh in his house from all these titles that's that's an uh, an incredible statistic really and that's a lot of versatility i suppose too that's amazing and and i want to say i want to i want to say that the the three titles in a row uh, I want to call that he's pulled off the Felix Ojeda-Aliassime because that's what Felix did back in in the fall, of course, with with his three titles there. And uh, I mean, Danil's accomplished a little bit more in his career thus far, um, and and owns a pretty healthy record against Felix too. But yeah, it's it's just great to see one of the stars of the game hitting their stride here. And yeah, I'm gonna be really interested to see where Medvedev ends up in terms of placement and the overall men's you know sphere uh, by the end of his career. Uh, you know, how many slams does he end up with? How many other accomplishments? Does he get back to number one and hold that for a time again? Um, does he challenge for the pinnacle of the sport after Djokovic and Nadal retire? 
what's going to happen then? Or, or does he get surpassed like the big three have done to so many, you know, I don't say generations, but so many groups of players, ages of players who wanted their moment and never got it because those three guys just hung around and hung around. Is he going to get passed by the Alcarazes, uh, Holger Rune, uh, Yannick Sinners, or is Medvedev going to get his chance to really kind of like leave his mark on the sport? Yeah, it, that that's going to be a, an interesting conversation to have. I would say right now, based on his age, he's certainly going to have a lot of opportunities. He's still just 27 years old. And yes, that's a different de- generation than an Alcaraz, Yannick Sinner coming up. Uh, but part of that same generation, I suppose, of your Rublevs, Hercatches, Noris, Hachinovs, Zverev, those cast of players and safe to say he's the most successful of them all uh, without a doubt. And right now, I mean, mean, this seems pretty crazy to say three years ago, but Medvedev's career trajectory suddenly is a lot stronger than Dominic teams who, you know, a few years ago won his first U S open title had been to a couple French open finals and had a lot of big titles. And and now Medvedev looks in that pole position. If we were talking about another, another star player who is in sort of that same generation. I mean, injuries can really mess with things, can't they? And I think with Dominic team, that's what we've seen, that he was out for such a a period of time and just has, no one's waiting for you to get back. We've said this before, right? Like no one's waiting. Mm -hmm. Oh, Dominic's back. Okay, let's just put him in the French Open final this year and and allow him to resume. You got to earn it again. And everyone else is competing and and playing strong. And the ATP Tour has a lot of depth right now, I feel like. And, And again, to go back to the big three, I feel like because of them, it's, we've almost got this backlog of talent to assess and we can't properly do it until Nadal and Djokovic say goodbye. Like when I was growing up, players like Becker and Edberg and Sampras, they all started winning slams early and and we knew that they were going to be players that were going to be spoken of, you know, in the, the grand scheme of the sport down the road. It's hard to say with the Medvedevs and the teams and the Zverevs and, and guys like that because of the fact that it's just a sport been dominated by those three dudes. Yeah, they, they've been largely like the previous generation of your Burdicks, Sangas and, and such boxed out by the big three and, and not getting those breakthrough opportunities. Credit to Medvedev, who does have that one Grand Slam title. I'm of the belief he'll win more. I mean, the question is, how more can he add? You know, can he get to four? Can he get to five? Can he get to eight? Uh, I mean, that feels like a stretch, but I have no idea. Well, beginning uh, Djokovic was huge because Djokovic definitely. had been undefeated coming in. And yep. it just looked like Djokovic was out to prove so much that he was just going to run away with it and not give anybody a chance. So um, that bodes certainly very, very well for Medvedev. And and the fact that Djokovic is not going to be in Indian Wells, and I would imagine not in Miami either, uh, allows Medvedev to even you know build potentially on, on what we've seen here from him these past three tournaments. Yeah, and that's official um, that Indian Wells did announce Novak Djokovic's withdrawal due to his vaccination status. Uh, He cannot enter the country and compete in the United States. Uh, We know that will change by the U.S. Open uh, for August, September. And actually, the USDA and U.S. Open Twitter accounts uh, supported Novak Djokovic in his application for exemption. uh, But that didn't work out for him. So we won't see him at Indian Wells, won't see him at Miami. I guess that'll lead into my question who becomes the favorite on the men's side if we don't have Novak Djokovic uh, at the Sunshine Double? Yeah, I mean, to me, Med, Med, who's going to argue against Medvedev the way he's been playing for the past month? Uh, and and Carlos Alcaraz, who missed the start of the year and returned without missing a beat with, uh, what, winning a tournament and making a finals. Yeah. He's dealing with a little something-something now, though, isn't he? Um, I think. Yes, uh, like yeah, told, so... Yeah. 
he pulled out of Acapulco with that uh, leg injury that hampered him in the finals in Rio to Cameron Norrie. He says it's not serious. I think he's traveled to Indian Wells and intends to play. But yeah, when if... you're 19, you know, you get over these things quickly, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, we hope. Play through them for sure. But I think if he's healthy, then obviously he's right up there. And I'm super excited to see him healthy and, mm-hmm. and be playing week in, week out to see what he can do to build on last year. I mean, last year's season from him was so incredibly exciting. And I really want to see, I don't know about you, I really want to see him and Djokovic peak and healthy and going toe-to-toe a few times this year. I think that would be really fun. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we got a glimpse of it in Madrid last year, an incredible three-setter, which Alcaraz won. Of course, he beat Nadal and Djokovic back-to-back in that tournament. And uh, he'll have... You know, plenty to defend coming up because he was the Miami Open winner last year. Uh, so some points for him on the board. Just to touch quickly on Felix Ojealiasim, who did play uh, in Dubai, losing to uh, Lorenzo Senego in straight sets. This was a surprise to me. He beat Senego uh, pretty handily a couple weeks prior, I think, in Rotterdam. So going out kind of early in this tournament, I didn't expect. And, you know... To be fair, it's been a bit of a wonky start for Canadian tennis as a whole in 2023. We've talked about Shapovalov, but Felix also pretty slow off the blocks. I hope that Miami and uh, sorry, Indian Wells and Miami will kind of afford us the chance and afford those two players the chance to kind of hit their stride a little bit. Um, I think we're holding Felix to a higher standard in that we expect more from him being in the top 10 where Dennis is down like what, around 30th in the world last I checked, I think. Um, So... But I think both could use these tournaments to kind of get things clicking again. And, uh, you know, they're the closest thing we have to a major in the sport. Indian Wells is often referred to as the fifth slam and and Miami, you know, follows it pretty much right afterwards. So I think for Felix, a chance to kind of reestablish that that he belongs in the top 10 and that he can consistently play at that level. And for Dennis, he's going to want to make, you know, uh, a mark and say, like, yeah, I belong not just around 30th to 40th in the world. Mm-hmm. I should be in the top 20. And to me, it's more concerning, I think, if if Dennis doesn't get things kind of going in one of these two tournaments to make, I mean, I don't want to say the second week, but you know what I'm saying, like to make the, the final 16 anyways in one of these two tournaments. To me, it's you got to kind of go back to the drawing board and, and either blow things up or, 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 or make some sort of reassessment on, on on what's important and what's working and not working. And and unfortunately, it's been more what's not working for Dennis these days. Yeah. Um, but But for both, I think this is a great opportunity. And look, both of them have had deep runs before in within the sunshine double so it's not like success here is foreign to these two players no that's true and we've said before i think felix uh lost in the opening rounds of both events last year so what an opportunity to make another jump up the rankings same same thing for dennis shapovalov i'd have to look back but he did not go deep at either event last year uh I'll talk about Acapulco because Shapovalov losing there. Alex Dimenauer defeating Tommy Paul uh, to win the biggest title of his career in ATP 500, winning that in three sets. Here's a question. I mean, if if we went four years back and someone asked you, who's going to have the better career, Alex Dimenauer or Denis Shapovalov? I mean, which name would you choose? And Dimenauer is now up to seven career ATP titles. Uh, Dennis, still with just one. Wow, interesting. I mean, Dimenauer's been on the radar for quite some time, and it's always been like, wow, his speed, his speed. You know, like mm-hmm. we talked about Michael Chang with with Mal Washington earlier in the episode, and and Mal was just saying like Chang was one of the toughest two players he ever played, along with Pete Sampras, because the guy would never quit. And Dimenauer is kind of like that too, go go go, Energizer Bunny. Um, so I I don't know. Both him and Shapovalov showed promise from such an early age, but you're right. It is kind of surprising to see how many more accolades. Uh, Dimenauer has accumulated at this point in his career. 
you know, we know with Dennis, the talent is there. I, I think he's a top 10 talent on the tour, but you need more than that to put it together. I mean, look at the talent that Nick Kyrgios has shown over the past 10 years. We've always known about that. Yeah. But isn't mentally able to block out all the other things and the distractions and the sideshow and, and just put it together for a stretch. So again, you know, and I, I don't want to repeat myself week in and week out, but I really think for Dennis to find that consistency, it's going to take the right voice. And clearly to me, the right voices aren't maybe there right now, or perhaps it doesn't make a difference. Maybe it's just, he's not ready yet maturity wise or, or in his, you know, growth as a professional and, and an individual ready to hear the voices that that could be a possibility too. Yeah, we hope it comes soon. He felt a Taylor Fritz. Obviously, Fritz a great opponent, uh, but six four six four. My concern there, the match wasn't particularly competitive. Uh, Rafael Nadal news uh, because he's not making the return at the Sunshine Double. Made the finals of Indian Wells last year with Fritz making the semis of Acapulco. Uh, quite the Ironman streak is officially ending. Rafael Nadal will fall outside the top ten of the rankings for the first time since 2005. That's a record streak. 912 weeks uh, in a row inside the top 10. That's an unbelievable feat. Almost 18 years. That is flipping insane. I mean, that <laughs> is just... I don't think I've ever sworn on this podcast, but that is flipping insane that you know, yeah. it's as close as I'll get. Unreal. Almost two decades, almost tw- like 20 years of a... a the consecutive part is what, what kills me. I mean, mm-hmm. there's been players who, not many, it's even 18 years non-consecutive of being top 10 presence, you know, predominantly is incredible. But to do it consecutively, and especially given, it's not like Nadal's never missed time with injury, right? Like you, you'd think, and it, it is injury related now, really, that he drops out of the top 10, which is a shame. Yes. Um, because otherwise it would have continued. Um, but, but otherwise, it, mind-boggling statistic. And I... I didn't have time to look through too many former players, but, you know, Sampras was in the top 10 for pretty much 12 years consecutively, which was phenomenal. Connors was there. I was looking at Jimmy Connors. He was there for like 16 years, but the ATP website only goes back to 1973 when he was in the top 10. So likely longer. And you look at some of Connors numbers, they're pretty insane as well, even though only eight slams. Uh, Agassi was 18 years, but it was in and out. And a lot of times out of the top 10, he had 1997 where he just, you know, sideshow distractions and just wasn't committed to tennis and other times when he wasn't fully committed. So for 18 years to be consecutively in the top 10 just speaks to the fact that for Rafa Nadal, tennis has come first and and he's just dedicated his entire life to being the best player he could be. It's um, it's staggering. Yeah, very well said. Carlos Alcaraz wasn't even two years old at the time uh, Rafael Nadal entered the top 10. Twitter didn't exist when Rafael Nadal first entered the top 10. Uh, good times. Some... Don't, don't you wish we could do away with our... <laughs> yeah, our, that's you know, right. Yeah. Uh, some cool statistics uh, about this stretch. Look, and if if he, I know he's training right now, and he's he's training on the clay. Of course, he's not playing the Sunshine Doubles. He doesn't have to worry about the hard courts for quite a while. If he gets back on the clay healthy and fit, there's not much to defend there until Roland Garros. He missed a couple events uh, of events. He had issues with the foot, if you remember, last clay court season uh, before going to Roland Garros. So very conceivably, he could jump right back in the top 10 with, you know, a, a clay title or or a deep run to a final. Would love to see it. Just want to see him healthy and, and able to go out there and compete the way that we've, you know, um, really enjoyed the last few years in particular with his sort of, I don't want to call it a resurgence, but uh, at the age of 35, 34, what he's done, just absolutely phenomenal. And I mean, this is why Roger Federer hung it up because Federer, you know, knew that if he came back, 
there was no guarantee and it was probably going to be a lot of in out of you know the lineup so to speak in terms of playing tournaments not because of that knee you hope that Rafa can come back and and be able to yeah put it together and compete on his own terms yeah, you touched on a good point before we get to the women's side just now. Um, you know, Roger Federer probably did not want to make that return and be a compromised player. Novak, after losing to Danil Medvedev in the semis, he was asked about the possibility of like, can you defeat Nadal on clay at the French Open? Got a question like that. And he said, if I didn't think that was a possibility, I wouldn't be here, friend. Right. Which I, I love. I love that competitive spirit and attitude. If he's saying like, if, if I don't believe that I have the ability uh, to beat the best, I'm not interested. And we know Novak Djokovic, he's not interested in being world number 28 or world number 37. Um, when, when and, I, can... and I don't think we're going to see that reality for a very long time. No, I we might we might not see it at all. <laughs> I mean, he might just leave on top. That's always a possibility as well. And uh, but he will be missing the sunshine double. Great opportunity uh, for the rest of the field. If we jump over to the women's side, lighter week certainly. Uh, highlighting just what happened in Mexico at the Monterey Open last year, we saw Leila Annie Fernandez hoist a title here. This one, a title for Donna Vekic, her fourth career uh, victory on the tour as she defeats Caroline Garcia 6-3-3-6-7-5 in this final that I watched. It was a pretty interesting final because it was very, very short points. Uh, Garcia was incredibly aggressive on return. Here's your key statistic. Vekic went, went three for three on breakpoint opportunities. Garcia, two of 16. I was so impressed by the way uh, the Croatian played under pressure on her serve. Always seemed to come up with the goods when she was up against it she's back inside the top 25 with this win same time last year she was outside the top 100 so what a resurgence yeah i mean donna was dealing with some injury issues too which i think she uh, you know mentioned on twitter how nice it is you know to be playing healthy again and uh, she's approaching her career high which was number 19 in the world i would have guessed higher actually but it's great to see her playing her best it's a fourth career title uh, she's won the last three in a row now against caroline garcia and, uh, and she started the year well by making the second slam quarterfinal of her career mm. at the Aussie Open. So things are definitely uh, looking up for her. It's great to see she's put in a ton of work. I've mentioned before how hard she was working in practice here in Toronto at the National Bank Open um, last summer. And uh, all that kind of hard work is, is clearly paying off for her with a, with a result like this. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Rebecca Marino did compete there, getting a win in first round action uh, before losing to uh, Zhu Lin, uh, the Chinese player who had a great run as well at the Australian Open. That was a tough three-set match. That leads us now into Indian Wells as well on the women's side, uh, the great women's and men's event. I know Bianca has already touched down posting a photo that she's happy to be back. Of course, has amazing memories from what she did four years years, ago. Four years ago. I can't believe that. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, time flies. We know that. Great opportunity for the the Canadian women as well. I have to think, even though Barbara Krejcikova defeated Iga Sviantek in that great final the other week, Iga has to come in as the favorite here, right? Yeah, I don't think anyone's thinking otherwise. I'm not expecting a Krejcikova, you know, back-to-back kind of title scenario, um, although she must be filled with a lot of confidence, you know, returning to her best singles form here. Uh, but Indian Wells can be exciting. It's, uh, you know, not quite two weeks, but it's it's more than just a week-long tournament. Uh, we're going to be following it closely, definitely on our next episode a week from now. It'll be all Indian Wells. And uh, don't forget as well, listeners, uh, Tennis Canada Bracket Challenge. Go check it out. 
that deadline will be uh, probably in the next couple of days once the draw is released, uh, men's and women's. For all the 1,000-level tournaments this year, you can pick your, your bracket all the way through from the first round all the way to the finals. And, uh, you know, hopefully get to boast about how well you've done or otherwise, you know, like we do, just kind of make fun of how how we just keep getting it wrong sometimes. <laughs> and that's that's part of the fun. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, and I know you are, too. Yeah, uh, pumped about this one. I'll just mention before we wrap up as well, our Canadian Catherine Sebov. She was competing at the women's ITF event actually here at Sobe Stadium in Toronto, captured the title, won the 25K event, which is her second ITF title of her career. Uh, she won her last one, her first one just in the fall. So, of course, we knew she qualified for the Australian Open main draw. She's playing great tennis inside the top 200. I think she's ready to move on from the ITF events, honestly, and we're going to see her in WTA events for, for this season and more to come. Yeah, and great to see a Canadian win the event here locally. Uh, I didn't get a chance, unfortunately, to, to make it out. I, I was really bummed not to be able to be there, actually, uh, because there was a, a nice lineup of, of players and, and young Canadians as well. You know, Kayla Cross was playing there. We've had her on the podcast mm -hmm. several times working with Rob Steckley. And, um, yeah, it's just great to see these events. It's, you don't think about it normally, you know, February in the winter in Toronto, uh, having a tennis event like this. But, uh, yeah, great for Sibov. And, um, and again, just, uh, yeah, really looking forward to uh, the great tennis we're going to see the next couple of weeks, just further south from here in the, the warm, uh, you know, uh, desert of, uh, of Indian Wells. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.